Hey everybody, it's Pastor Dylan and welcome to the Dayspring Wesleyan Church Podcast. At the end of this episode, please take the time to download our church app. It's the best way to stay connected to the life of the church. All you have to do is go to the app store, search for Church Center, download and enter the information for our church. You will then be connected to our church community. I hope the following presentation inspires you to move closer to God in this journey we call faith. Enjoy. Well, good morning, church. So I'm a little bit concerned. I just went down to uh, say something to my sister, Nicole. And uh, when I bent down to say something, there was a spark. Um, so I'm a little bit nervous about that, okay? <laughs> you know, my sister and stuff. But yeah, I got shocked all of a sudden. I'm like, my face hurts from that, you know? So anyways, uh, hey, what we have going on this week, obviously, is we have a big Christmas Eve service that's taking place. And so we just want to remind you all, we have services at both three and five, and we're expecting uh, quite a good group at these services. So again, if you want to, uh, we'd love to have you here, invite friends and, and family. Even if you want to invite enemies, that's okay too. We'd like to have everybody here. Uh, so it's going to be a special service together. And then uh, afterwards, after the five o'clock service, if there's anybody available to help us with some of the cleanup, we're basically just doing some spot cleaning up and stuff. We'd love to have your help with some of the vacuuming and just making sure things are in order. Because on Sunday, we're also having a Christmas service. Now, we're only going to have one service, just to let you know, and that will be at the 11 o'clock hour. And what we're going to be doing is we're going to be taking an M&M to tell the Christmas story. And then as the kids leave, they'll all get M&Ms as they leave. And then you get to decide if they get to eat them in the car or they get to wait till later, okay? Um, but we just want to remind you of that. And then uh, also, because we're only having uh, one service, there will be no Sunday school classes next week as well. So anyway, so plan to be part of those great services that we have going on. Uh, today, we're continuing our study. We're going to be looking at John three sixteen and 17 as part of our service. Uh, this is part of our, uh, the bigger picture that we've been doing um, called the uh, Stardom Series. But I want to read you as we start out today... Um, There's a story that I remember hearing in my youth that I thought was just so profound and so meaningful that I wanted to read it with you this morning. And so um, just listen for a minute and um, see if you can just kind of capture the moment of this. It says, Ted Stallyard undoubtedly qualifies as one of the least turned off by school, uh, very slow in appearance, expressionless, unattractive. Even his teacher, Miss Thompson, enjoyed bearing down her red pen as she placed X's beside all the wrong answers and love giving the big red F's. If only she had studied his records more carefully, they read. First grade, Ted shows promise in his work and attitude, but has poor home situation. Second grade, Ted could do better. Mother seriously ill, receives little help from home. Third grade, Ted is a, Ted is a good boy, but too serious. He is a slow learner. His mother died this year. Fourth grade, Ted is very slow but well-behaved. His father shows no interest whatsoever. Christmas arrived that fifth grade year for Miss Thompson. The children piled elaborate wrapped gifts on their teacher's desk. Ted brought one in too. It was wrapped in a brown paper bag and held together with scotch tape. Miss Thompson opened each gift as the children crowded around to watch. Out of Ted's package fell a gaudy rhinestone bracelet with half the stones missing and a bottle of cheap perfume. The children began to snicker, but she silenced them by splashing some of the perfume on her wrist and letting them smell it. She put the bracelet on too. At day's end, after the children had left, Ted came by the teacher's desk and said, Miss Thompson, 
You smell just like my mother. And the bracelet looks real pretty on you. I'm glad you like my presence. He left. Miss Thompson got down on her knees and asked God to forgive her and to change her attitude. The next day, the children were greeted by a Reformed teacher. One commented to loving each of them. One committed to loving each of them, especially the slow ones, especially Ted. Surprisingly, or maybe not surprisingly, Ted began to show great improvement. He actually caught up with most of the students. He even passed a few of the classes. Time came and went. Miss Thompson heard nothing from Ted for a long time. Then one day, she received this note. Dear Miss Thompson, I wanted to be the first. Um, I wanted you to be the first to know. I will be graduating second in my class. Love, Ted. Four years later, another note arrived. Dear Miss Thompson, they just told me I would be graduating first in my class. I wanted you to be the first to know. The university has not been easy, but I liked it. Love, Ted. And four years later, dear Miss Thompson, as of today, I am Theodore Stalliard, MD. How about that? I wanted you to be the first to know. I'm getting married next month, the 27th to be exact. I want you to come and sit where my mother would sit if she were alive. You're the only family I have now. Dad died last year. Miss Thompson attended the wedding and sat where Ted's mother would have sat. The compassion she had been shown, that young man entitled her to that privilege. Ted leaned down at the wedding and said to Miss Thompson, Thank you for loving me. I was changed because of you. Miss Thompson replied back, Ted, you are the one who changed me. And I remember hearing this story, and I was just kind of moved by it. And um, then I always like to look up these stories online to find out sort of the origin from it. And as I read the origin, I, it, it just kind of, I was a little bit deflating because I read that this was a fictional story that somebody had wrote um, because they wanted, to, um, um, they wanted to use this in some of their teaching seminars uh, to help teachers think about the difference that they're making in, in the lives of students. But what really moved me as I read this sort of post and I read this story was all the comments underneath this story. And all the comments, and there was like a hundred or more of them said this as I began to read through them. That's my story. That's my story. One said, a teacher made a difference like that in my life. They showed me a little bit of attention, showed me a little bit of love. And it changed me. I began to pass classes and I graduated college and made something of myself. Another one said, a coach took the time to notice me and to make me feel accepted and spent time pouring into me. And I became a better athlete and a better person because of that time that coach invested in me. Another one said, a grandparent had to take me in, had to show me love, had to show me attention that I wasn't getting at home. And it made all the difference in the world, and I didn't turn out like my parents did. Somebody else wrote, a neighbor saw my situation, provided the help that I needed, and took time to go over classes and work with me so that I became something of myself. And I thought to myself, doesn't that fit perfectly with our theme? That you can make such a small gesture in somebody's life, and it can make such a big difference in their world. You see, for the last several weeks, what we've been talking about is this theme called stardom. And stardom is the idea of a big God 
becoming very small and becoming human as a baby, leaving everything he knew, a big God becoming small to make a big difference. And so we lit several of the candles uh, even earlier this service. And the first week, you remember, we, we spent time in the story about hope. And what we talked about hope was, hope is this idea that, like, we tend to think of hope as more of a wish, but it's more than that. It's sort of an expectation. And what we notice is that if God proved to be faithful in the Old Testament, and then he proved himself to be faithful in the New Testament when he came down to this earth, and then he said he's coming back, we have this expectation in our hope that God will return, and that sustains us. And then we spent some time talking about peace the following week. And that idea that when the world was expecting this warrior, Jesus came in the form of a baby in a moment of peace. And in that moment of peace, what he was able to do was miraculous. He began to preach this idea of peace. And matter of fact, when he was talking about enemies, he says, I want you to love your enemies and I want you to pray for those who persecute you. A moment of peace. And we even reminded you that even on his way to the cross, even as he was being arrested and the disciples were ready to go to war, Jesus told them, no, 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 guys, put your knives away. This isn't what I've come to do. I didn't come to start a rebellion. In other words, I'm peacefully going to transition my power on the cross and give myself up for you. A moment of peace. And then last week we talked about the idea of joy. And I remember last year, because it's still vivid in my mind, that we talked about this idea that no one can ever steal your joy. It's yours to choose whether you're going to give it away. And all of us need to understand that what Jesus did on the cross and what he did in come to this world is he became our salvation or our source of joy and our source of strength. And then today, church, we're going to focus on this idea of love. Because what you and I understand that with a little bit of love, it makes a big difference in our world. And so there's a passage that we're going to talk about today. And some of you may not have been brought up in church, so this may be brand new to you. Others will know that this is pretty much the staple, the foundation of the church. It's John 3.16, which I had to memorize in such an early age. But we're going to discuss that today. But as we're trying to place movies with sort of different themes, one of the things we thought about was... Who could experience love more than anybody else but Charlie Brown? You know, Charlie Brown seemed like he was this sort of always depressed kid. And I have to tell you, I didn't like watching Charlie Brown when I was growing up because I got tired of that kid trying to kick a football and that girl stealing it away from him. Like, that just drove me crazy, you know? I'm like, who does she think she is doing that, you know? But he was always just missed that football. But there's the Christmas story of, the, of Charlie Brown Christmas. And man, they have to put on this pageant and play together. And again, I would tell you the whole story, but I'm going to mess it up. So again, we enlisted the help of Jim Bell, and he's going to give you the unnecessary telling of this story. Welcome to Unnecessary Recaps with Jim Bell. I'm your host, Jim Bell. And today, we're going to be recapping the movie, A Charlie Brown Christmas. In a day and age where a good Christmas movie needs big special effects, or big Broadway dance fan scenes, or one where Candace Cameron Buer has a mean corporate boyfriend but returns home over Christmas to fall in love with a high school classmate who's now a lumberjack, and with the help of Santa, they come together and kiss during a Christmas snow. <laughs> I just love those unpredictable Hallmark movies. <laughs> With these incredible options today, 
What is it that draws anyone to a two-dimensional, primitively adapted movie and finds the bald, depressingly negative eight-year-old as its main character? I have no idea. From the beginning of the movie, Charlie Brown is whining and complaining. Snoopy, his pet dog, enters his doghouse in a Christmas decorating contest. And Charlie bemoans how commercialization is taking over Christmas. While in a therapy session with his doctor, eight-year-old neighbor girl Lucy, who is the therapist, mind you, complains to Charlie Brown about how depressed she gets at Christmas because she never gets what she wants. And what does she want? Well, every eight-year-old's dream, real estate. And oh, Charlie loses his mind again. Commercialism! And his sister Sally then asks him to write a letter to Santa saying, Whoever complicates things, just send cash. Tens and twenties, all I want is my fair share. And Charlie Brown freaks out again. But my real issue with this movie is a moral issue. Where are these kids' parents? Who lets their eight-year-old swindle money off of kids masquerading as a doctor? Who allows their kid to never, ever shower in the case of Pigpen? dirty little kid. And when the movie transitions to the theater scene, why is eight-year-old Charlie Brown the director and not the drama teacher or the music teacher? Will the adult in the room please step up? The lack of parental supervision is very disconcerting. Of course, if the adults did show up, it wouldn't matter. All they'd say is, wah, 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 wah. The movie takes a turn when they realize that their Christmas play is missing a Christmas tree. And to make an anti-consumer statement against Christmas, Charlie sticks it to his buddies by picking the most miserable, feeble, weak pine twig that they call a Christmas tree. Why someone never called the Better Business Bureau on that tree farm for fleecing kids out of a few bucks for a piece of kindling, I'll never know. Yet, it's around that weak, uncommercial, miserable little tree that this gauge of eight-year-old riffraff find the true meaning of Christmas. <sighs> and that's pretty much a Charlie Brown Christmas movie. Well, thanks again, Jim, for that unnecessary telling, and which it was. Uh, I don't know about you guys, but uh, if you've ever seen that movie, there's a great line as they have that tree. And the line is this, I never thought it was such a bad little tree. It's not bad at all, really. Maybe it just needs a little love. And I have to tell you, in what we look at as this world, and I think with all of our frustrations and sort of all of our baggage that we have at times, and where we feel like we're not worth much of anything, that God looked at this world and he said, this is what I've come here for. This is how I want to show love. And so John 3, 16 and 17 is just that culmination of what we experience in this world. When Jesus looked and he said, you know, my expectation from this word was to have everybody together and, and, and never have any sin or never have any junk happen. But yet when centered in this world, Jesus said, but I love this world enough that I've given for it. And so let's read together John three sixteen and 17. It says, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Shall we pray? 
Father, again, what a tremendous passage that we have in front of us. The idea, Father, that you left everything above as a big God to become very small in humanity, to become Emmanuel, God with us. And then to offer us this hope and that you change us in such a way that it became very magnificent. I pray today as we look at this familiar passage of Scripture that all of us would do a little bit of examining ourselves and saying, what does love look like for us? Or maybe some of us just need to be loved or accepted, or maybe we need to extend love to others as well. Help us to understand that. And Father, I pray today, if I get anything wrong in the text, I pray that you would clean it up in the ears of your people so that the only voice that they hear from today is you. In your name we pray. Amen. So as I was preparing this message, one of the mistakes I actually made is... uh, I, I had already positioned all the verses and scriptures that I was going to use over this Advent season. But uh, in preparing one of the other lessons, I actually took part of what I was going to share today and used it as part of that lesson. And I was going to tell the story about Joseph and the love that he had for his family and the commitment he made. But we already talked about that in one of the other passages. So as I was doing my research and studying, I thought, I want to focus on John three sixteen and 17 today. But even in doing that, I just was sort of mesmerized by this idea that when, 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 uh, when Jesus first came to the earth, he told, uh, the angel told Mary, you're going to be pregnant and you're going to conceive a son. And then Joseph sees his wife who's now pregnant. And again, how does he respond to that knowing that he has never slept with her? So what's he to do with the situation? And it says that Joseph had already committed in his mind to divorce her quietly. But then an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph and again said, Joseph, what, you, what your wife has in her is conceived by the Holy Spirit, which again is sort of this crazy, bizarre story to many of us. But as I focused on that, I started thinking about what God ended up doing. Because what God ended up doing is he ended up using the love of a father, Joseph, who Joseph now has to raise this child, who is not necessarily biologically his, but he has to raise this child, and then Mary, who has to take on this responsibility as well in loving this child. And I thought about the rules that these two placed in it. So I wanted to speak a little bit about that today. Because first of all, there's the love of the father that we see in the story. And if you think about your situation, and again, I know that not everyone has a perfect situation where they have a loving father and mother. But I want us to think about sort of a a better situation. But there's the love of the father. And by the way, in our culture today, let's face the facts that there is a difference between men and women, right? I mean, we're living in a culture now today that says there's really no difference. As a matter of fact, I remember this happening when I was a youth pastor. And I remember sort of this transition happening where it felt like that it was just interesting to me. Because guys were always disgusting and, you know, they... They just did disgusting things. They smelled disgusting and and all that. Matter of fact, I went into, I haven't been into a a guy's locker room in a long time, but I went to, they asked me to speak to the Elgin basketball team this week on Tuesday, and I went in there and forgot how bad those things smell. I mean, it was horrendous, you know? So guys can be a little bit disgusting at times, but what I thought was interesting is I sort of saw this shift in where girls were trying to become more like guys. And I thought, are you kidding me? Guys are disgusting. Why do you want to be like them? We want our women to be women and we want our men to be men, you know? But there is a difference between the way men and women function. And we're even told that in the scripture. So there are certain things that are very fatherly and there are certain things that are very motherly as well. And so the love of the father is what I want to look at first. 
And first of all, you need to know this, that fathers have this ability, this God-given ability to instruct. Like they are supposed to teach. Fathers are very black and white. They're very right and wrong. Like there's just sort of no middle ground in what they think. Matter of fact, Proverbs 1.8 says this, listen, my son, to your father's instruction and do not forsake your mother's teaching. Now, I have to tell you, again, not that everyone gets this all right, because, you know, fathers can sometimes, they can try to be instruct a kid and like they really mess up. And I've told you this story before, but I, it just cracks me up because there was five of us kids growing up and we could not sit at the table without somebody spilling a drink. And my dad had had enough. And he was like ready to lose it on us. And all of a sudden he's like, everybody get over here. And so I don't know if we marched or whatever, but we all came over there and he stood in front of the sink and he took a glass out of the cupboard and he said, now this is a glass. And he held it there. And then he took a picture of water or tea and he says, and this is a picture of water. And he said, and this is how you pour your drink. And as he began to pour his drink, the glass slipped out of his hand and it broke everywhere. Now, I have to tell you, in trying to instruct your children, trying to give them a lesson, man, there's just not much of a lesson there, okay? And so we all stood there, and we looked at my dad, and we knew that he was mad, and so we're trying not to laugh, but then my mom loses it, you know? And so we're like, yeah, it's fair game, you know? And it's like, good lesson, dad, see you again, okay? You know? But I have to tell you, like, there is something about fathers sort of instructing their children that is very meaningful. It's about letting them know that here's the right and wrong in life. Here's the way that you treat people around you. Here's some of the things that I want you to take note of because this will make you a better person. Like we need instruction in our life. And that's why from God's perspective, he has given us the word of God. He has given us the Bible. Because that's something that you and I can read each and every day and begin to apply some of it to our lives and learn along the way because he's trying to instruct us. And not only that, but it's interesting to me in Matthew 13, 55a, when Jesus is beginning to do his ministry and the crowds aren't really sure to pay attention to him, one of the things they say is this, isn't this the carpenter's son? And again, they were probably trying to put down a little bit his teaching because what does this mean Jesus really know? Because he is only the son of a carpenter. And if his father has taught him anything, it's only to work with wood, not necessarily how to read the word of God. But again, I think that's interesting because I think one of the rules of a father is this. It's to instruct or to teach their children in certain trades. Why? Especially in the Bible time, it was important because you wanted to make sure that your children would be instructed in such a way that when they grew up, they would have a trade and they would be able to provide for themselves and for their family. And so that was important to them. You know, the scripture tells us this, train up a child in the way they should go, and when they grow old, they will not depart from it. And that's just not only talking about biblical things, even though that's sort of the response to it, like teach them, instruct them, make sure they're in the church. Like you understand the importance for a father of being in the church? Like, there's a real importance in them being here. There's a real important aspect of not just them being here, but that your kids see you reading the Word of God at home. That they see you worshiping with your family. That they see you worshiping to songs. It's important that your children see that. Because it begins, even what we're going to get into next, it begins to sort of shape them and mold them. You see, we have, this, um, we have this idea in our society that fathers are kind of dumb and stupid. And that's not the case. 
Fathers are to teach us trades so that we can provide for ourselves. And I have to tell you, like growing up, like um, one of the things I learned from my dad is because he he, he's um, an accountant. And so he taught me how to finance. He taught me how to keep my checkbook. He taught me what it means to have money. And then he also taught me this is how to give. And so giving for me has never been a problem. Why? Because I was instructed on it at an early age. That now it just becomes part of who I am. And so, Father, there is some instruction that needs to be done along the way. But that instruction then begins to shape us. Why? Because the Father's love shapes us as well. Isaiah 64, 8 says this, Yet you, Lord, are our Father. We are the clay. You are the potter. We are the work of your hands. Now, I love that passage, but all of a sudden, I'm glad it's not just about clay and pottery itself, because if it were to me to shape and mold something, I am not an artist. And so whenever we had to do those things in class, we had to shape something, they were like, be like, make a dog. And I'm like, mine was a blob, you know? And I just always try to convince them, you know, my, my, my dog is special, okay? It has issues, you know? Could you just give it a little bit of space, you know? But like, I couldn't shape those things. But what it tells us as a father is that we have a responsibility then to shape our children. We have the responsibility to mold our children in the way that they will go. And so molding and shaping literally happens as we do life together. Because you have to understand, again, children are watching their parents. They're watching the way that they respond. They're watching the way that they talk. And all of a sudden, that begins to shape us in some unique and helpful ways. Just the other day, I had something that happened with my son. Uh, uh, my youngest, he, uh, he was kind of mouthing off to his mom. And just kind of said stuff that was rude. And finally I just said, that's enough. And then I said, you do not talk to your mother that way. And so why am I doing that? I'm taking time to shape him and to mold him and to instruct him so that he doesn't make mistakes. You know, I'm taking him by the hand and protecting him along the way. I want him to know that when he gets older and when he is married, that that is not the way that you talk to your spouse. Why? Because I'm trying to shape and mold them so that they can be a more productive member of society. And when Jesus came to live on this earth, he came to mold and to shape us as well. His word begins to penetrate our lives in such a way that it shapes and molds us in how we are to live. He showed us an example. This is the way you respond when people are upset. This is the way to respond when you're hurt. This is the way you respond to joys. He was shaping us all along the way. And you and I have the responsibility to shape those around us as well. And then it leads us to this, that a father also, his love also protects us. And so verse, um, uh, chapter 2 of Matthew, verse 13 and 14, this is basically the time after the shepherd and the wise men had came and all of a sudden we know that Herod was going to have all the babies killed, that this is sort of the response to that. Verse 13 says, When they had gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, he said, take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. So he got up, took the child and his mother during the night and left for Egypt. You see, Joseph did what any father would do in that situation. He had this ability to respond and to protect. And I have to tell you again, I love the ways dads protect because dads protect when they need to. But dads also 
allow children to sort of go through some of the bumps and bruises so that when those things happen later in life, they know how to respond. Like watch the way a father responds when their son gets hurt. Okay, if he falls down and he may be bleeding a little bit or scraped up, what does the father say? You know, just wipe it off, get up, and continue on, right? I mean, that's a father's response where a mother might be like, oh, honey, it's okay, you know? And then, I mean, you can really make them soft if you're not careful in doing that, you know? So it's, again, it's the different rules between fathers and mothers. But a father will protect their children when they find immediate danger coming in. And so I tell you often at night, like, my wife does this thing where she'll wake up and she'll say, who is that? And I have to tell you, I get up and I'm ready to go and I'm in my underwear and thinking, okay, it's go time and this is going to be bad, but you know, we're going to go because I want to protect my family. And then of course, it's never anybody. She's just dreaming or whatever, which just drives you crazy, you know, because I'm just ready to man up, you know. But so you have sort of those experience, but a father's role is also to protect their children along the way. And then you have the role of the mother. And it's the love of the mother we're talking about. And the mothers have this ability to just be one that comforts. And so Isaiah 66, which again, Isaiah is the prophet in the Old Testament who, who did so much to talk about the coming of Jesus. He, it says this, As a mother comforts her child, so will I comfort you. And you will be comforted over Jerusalem. Now, I don't know how that comfort comes from most of your mothers. I would love to tell you that my mother was the most comforting individual ever. But to some degree, that would be a little bit of a lie. All right? Because my mother had this big thing like, if you got hurt, like I one time had my finger dangling because I cut it. And it was dangling. And um, she, and it was bleeding crazy and stuff. And she gave me a rag with ice and said, put it on there. She says, we're not going until I'm ready to go. All right, and so she had to take a shower to make sure that she was presentable for the emergency room, you know. So then when we get to the emergency room, it had taken so long that the blood had literally dried to the rag, you know. But my mom got me there, you know, and stuff. But so maybe you don't have sort of that, that good situation. But I will tell you this. My mother was always the one that I went to when I was really hurting inside. My mother was the one I went to when stuff was a little discouraging or there were times that I doubted even my existence in ministry. It was my mom that I went to. You see, mothers have a way of comforting you and getting down on your level and making you feel special. You see, I would like to give this example to everyone, but they literally tell you that if you really want to talk to a child in the right way to get down on their level. Great thing about me is I'm so short, I'm already on their level, you know? But for most of you, it's about getting down and just looking through them eye to eye and letting them know that you're entering their world and that you're loving them in a real and special way. I don't know if you've ever seen a coach do that. But sometimes when coaches are coaching these little kids, they'll bring them all in a huddle and they'll get down on their knee and they'll begin to talk to them. Why? Because they want them to feel valued. They want them to feel comforted and loved and protected. You see, because these big adults sometimes can be very scary and they can be protective. But you get down on their level, and that means something. And so the comfort of a mother just means something. And Jesus is known as the comforter, known as the provider. That's what we call him. He's the one that we go to when we are hurting. We don't have anyone else to turn to. When things are a wreck in our life or situations are just more than we can bear, we have one that knows what we're going through. He's the comforter. He came down here and he lived this life that you and I lived. He experienced all the things that we experienced. He lost a loved one and cried. 
He was at a wedding and celebrated with others. He was mocked. He was spit upon. He was rejected by society. It says even in his own hometown, they didn't really believe in him. And they wanted him out of there. Jesus knows what you and I go through. And he becomes our comforter. He's the one that listens to us and appreciates us. Second thing about a mother's love is this, is that moms really have this sort of value that they have. So Luke 2.19 says this, that after Mary had experienced all these things in Jesus' birth, it says this, but Mary treasured all these things and pondered them in her heart. And I think what's amazing about mothers, have you ever seen mothers, and I don't know if any of you have had this happen, but mothers really treasure things that you do. So I don't know, again, if any of you had this happen, but I remember a time when my mom pulled out a little baggie, and in that baggie was my first hair clippings. My first haircut was in that bag. And I was like, what kind of sick world are you living in where you think that that's okay? You know, some mothers will bring out a tooth or their nail clippings. And again, man, we are messed up people if we're bringing those up and keeping them, you know? Like those are messed up situations. But there are things that mothers experience in life where they really treasure what's going on. I was so proud of my uh, son in the last couple weeks, and he's into swimming, and uh, the relay team he was uh, part of, they, they, they got the school record. And I have to tell you, those are things that I treasure in my heart. But we don't treasure those as much as I remember when he was baptized. I don't, I, they, they pale in comparison to the first time, the first time that he quoted a memory verse. It pales in comparison to the first time he said, I love you. Or that he took his first steps. Like those are the things a parent treasures in their heart. You know, I love those moments. Even this week I took my other son and uh, he got to go to the, um, the River Valley uh, basketball game. They're playing Harding this week. And as they were there at, at halftime, they got a play. And, and so he scored a basket. And Bo just happened to be announcing and called him Big Daddy Isaac Osborne. And I was just like, Dad, did you hear what they called me? You know, and he was so excited. But I have to tell you, even though he did that, the thing that I treasured more is, by the way, if you didn't go to this game, it was like a super exciting game, okay? It was a really close game, and River Valley made some big buckets there at the end. I mean, it was unbelievable to me. But my son who experienced this came up, and he's like, Dad, did you see that? He's like, yeah, our team just, man, we, we just did that. Did you see that? And he's like, he's explaining to me the plays that I just witnessed, you know, like I didn't see it. But he is so excited. And I have to tell you, those are the moments that I treasure. But you have to understand this. When Jesus looks at you and I, there are moments that he treasures. Last week, we had 11 people accept Jesus into their life. And it says when that happens, all of heaven rejoices. Because those are treasured moments. All of heaven rejoices when one person is saved. And I have to think there's probably a party going on every day in heaven as more and more people come to know him. The second part of that, and I thought it was interesting too, but in Luke um, 51, if you continue to read the story about Jesus, Jesus, we read, um, we don't read much of it. We just read about his birth. And then we have when he's 12. And when he's 12, he goes into the temple. And what amazes me about this situation is He's in the temple, and he goes with his big caravan of family. And all of a sudden, the, they leave. And somewhere along the way, they recognize Jesus is gone. And I have to tell you, that's a big deal. All right? Because this is the Son of God, and you just lost him. You know? Like, how do you explain that one? I mean, you can lose any of your other kids. You cannot lose the Son of God. 
Like that's a bad thing. So they decided to go back and they find Jesus in there and he's in the temple and he's kind of listening to people that are speaking. And uh, Mary and Joseph come up to him and they're like, hey, wh- wh- where have you been? Why-, why didn't you stay with us or whatever? And Jesus' response to me almost sounds sarcastic, but it probably wasn't because he's perfect, but he's like, uh, didn't you know I'd be in my father's house? You know, talking about God. And I'm like, and, and after that happened, it's funny because they pulled him aside and it says in verse 51, then he went down to Nazareth with them and was obedient to them, but his mother treasured all these things in her heart. She pondered these things and understood them. And there are times when you and I will ponder the things that happen in our families, happen in our own lives, and that they are treasured. But then the mother's biggest thing that I love is this. I believe that mothers have this ability to show grace. Isaiah 49, 15 says this, Can a mother forget the baby at her breast and have no compassion on the child she has born? Though she may forget, I will not forget you. See, mothers have this ability, even at the end of the day, because again, remember, dads are very black and white. Very right and wrong. And sometimes it takes the love of a mother who says, it's okay, you're still our child. And that was the greatest thing about being growing up because there were times when I thought I'd made some pretty bad mistakes. There might have been times, I don't know that I ever did this, but I've, I've heard kids do it where they'll tell their mom, I hate you. Or they'll disrespect them in some way. And this is what's amazing about mothers where dads might be like, you know what, it's time to let them go. They got to get out of this house. A mom is like, nah, you're still good and I still love them. Mothers have this ability to show grace. And after all the sin and after all the junk that we've had in our life, God has that ability to show us grace. It says that when he came down to this earth and when he died upon the cross, he died because you were valuable to him. You mattered. And he wanted to extend grace to you as well. So when I was preparing the study, one of the things I wanted to look up as I had already went through the scriptures and I already put these points together, but I wanted to see what the world said was the difference between a fatherly love and a motherly love. So I Googled that and began to read all these um, um, psychiatrists and what they were saying. And what I thought was interesting is this. They literally agreed with what the Bible says. And the articles all had this. They said that every child needs the love of a mother and the love of a father. And when you bring those things together, it creates a kind of love that allows a child to be stable. And I thought about that because I thought about this in Jesus who is God. The love of a mother was invested in him. The love of a father was invested in him. And then at the end of the day, we see the love of God in that relationship. And that love of God happens through this first. First of all, love of God is one that gives. See, John 3, 16, 17 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. You see, God didn't come to just reject everything about you and say, you're out of here because you've been sinning so much. It said that he loved you and he valued you enough to say that I'm willing to give my son. And Jesus himself said, I'm willing to give up my divinity, to give up my godness, to become a human. And he gave all of that up to experience what you and I experienced. He said, I'm going to give up all of my freedoms. I'm going to give up all of my, you know, not having any experience, any pain, not having to experience sin. And he said, I'm going to give all of that up because I love this world enough that I want to give myself to them. You know, scripture says this once. It says, what parent or father, if his son asks him for bread, 
we'll give them a stone. And you see, we're living in a world where we say that we need help and we need salvation and we need to be forgiven. And God's response to that was what? I'll give my son and he'll die on a cross. Which leads us to the second thing because I believe that every father and every mother gives and gives and gives and gives. And we especially know that true during this time because the giving really becomes a sacrifice as well. And think about this. When you think about the love of God and the sacrifices that are made, every parent understands that because there are sacrifices that all of us make. And again, especially at this time, there are some wants and some desires and some things that we want, but we do what? We sacrifice them for our kids. Why? Because we love them. And sometimes that sacrifice can be very hard and sometimes you want to continue to give and you want to continue to sacrifice and you want to give all that you can. And it's even funny because even as my wife was sort of getting our kids' gifts together, she started counting the number of gifts and it doesn't seem to be as much the older they get because I think you spend a little bit more on less. But my wife is counting up the gifts and she's like, that's not enough. And I was like, are you kidding me? My bank account says it's enough. Like we're empty. We can go no further. It is enough. But every parent has that sort of where they want to give and they want to give and they want to sacrifice. Why? Because they do it for the love of their child. And Jesus, when he gave himself on the cross, demonstrated his love for us in that sacrifice. John 15, 13 says this, Greater love has no one than this, to lay down one's life for his friends. Jesus looked at humanity with all its sin and sickness and said, you're worth it. And I love you. And I'm going to give myself up for you. And so he sacrificed his body in order that you and I can have eternal life and spend it with him in heaven. And then the last thing I believe that we see of the love of God is this. Love speaks truth and extends grace. So John 1.14 says this, The Word became flesh, talking about Jesus, and made His dwelling among us. We have seen His glory, the glory of the one and only Son, who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Now, doesn't that sound like a mom and dad? A mom is full of grace. A dad is full of truth, the right and wrong. And when Jesus came into this world, what, this is what happened. He looked at people, and he looked at their sin, and he looked at their shame, and he said this, I still love you, and I'm willing to forgive you. He would look at their sin, and he would call out this, and he said, yeah, you did this wrong, but I love you, and I can forgive you. Why? Because he's full of grace and he's full of truth. And even after he forgave them, what's the one thing he would say to them? Go and sin no more. And I'm so thankful for a God that looked at me and said, Chuck, I understand from time to time you make mistakes. I'm going to be honest with you. But I'm still going to love you and I'm still going to forgive you. And church, what would that look like in our world if we did the same to those around us? What would that look like if we extended that same kind of truth and grace to people? To where we say, I know that you still hurt. I know that you may still have hurt me, but I want to extend grace to you and I want to love you. I wonder what our world would look like. Would you stand with me this morning? You see, I know this, that a little bit of love can make a big difference in the people around us. Let's pray together. Father God, I want to thank you for this time and let you allow us to read your word. 
And I think probably some of us today struggle with that idea. Maybe some of us are having a hard time even feel being loved. And I pray today that they would feel loved and accepted and valued because you have been their savior. You have been their provider. You have been their comforter. And you want to instruct and teach them along the way. And I pray to, for those of us who have been believers for a long time that, Father, that we would learn to instruct others as well, but to be very gracious and to show them love because I believe that showing a little bit of love can make a big difference in the world around us. Thanks for meeting with us today, Father, and for your glory and for your riches that you continue to give us each and every day. We love you and we thank you. In your name we pray. Amen. Hey, church, thanks for being here today. Hopefully we'll see you at one of the Christmas Eve services or next Sunday. Once again, thanks for listening. If you are in the Marion area, we would love to engage with you at one of our Sunday morning gatherings. For directions, service times, and information about our fantastic children and student ministries, visit us at dayspringwesleyan.org. That's dayspringwesleyan.org.